Kuroda Sam, but also the Prime Minister as well. I think that's absolutely right. So there's a lot of piffle being written about um, the Unification Church. Uh, there is criticism from the opposition, and uh, of course the opposition has, has not said boo to a goose for, uh, for an incredibly long time. And finally they've got something to complain about. I think that the, the public will have forgotten about it very quickly, but really the, uh, the issue was the, uh, the rising inflation. And the rising inflation is quite unacceptable. The government had uh, printed money to drive up um, to drive up prices without a plan to uh, to get wages mm-hmm. up. So, and it was particularly uh, 24 uh, February, the uh, the Ukrainian system that uh, situation that uh, caused uh, global uh, inflation to uh, to accelerate more than expected. But um, but that's left uh, wages a long way behind uh, prices in Japan. And I think there is a, a social contract there. OK, well, very, very quickly, because we're running out of time. If, if interest rates do rise in Japan, um, does that have a big impact on Japan, given that they're so low to, to start with? A lot of talk about maybe rising interest rates. Rising interest rate, um, interest rates, I think, will be uh, will be rising from the beginning of, uh, of April. Uh, I think. Mm. The most exposed companies are the uh, electric power companies, uh, to extent also the uh, the rail companies. But Japan is so absolutely awash with uh, with cash, they'll, they'll probably uh, shrug and say, "Good, a little bit more interest on my uh, my <laughs> cash deposits." Okay, Nick. Thank you very much. Sadly, we've run out of time there, but that's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan, the Nikkei 225 up right now three quarters of a percent. It looks like the Hang Seng is going to open unchanged later on this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news, back chats with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, cloudy, occasional showers, few thunderstorms later. Maximum temperature about 24 degrees. There is a strong monsoon signal in force. Going to be windier with showers, more frequent at times tomorrow and Thursday. Temperature right now 23 degrees, 87% relative humidity. Times 8:32. Here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. Rescue workers in Indonesia have worked through the night to search for survivors of a devastating earthquake. More than 160 people were killed by the quake in West Java province. The epicentre was near the town of Chanjur, where health workers have been treating many wounded people in the open after the local medical facilities were damaged. Elkan Rahimov is from the International Red Cross in Indonesia. The most important now is a rescue to reach out to the people who are trapped and therefore volunteers of the Indonesian Red Cross. During the first aid uh, is provided, uh, health uh, needs are met, also emergency shelter is provided where it's needed. But again, it's very important first day is to rescue, reach out to those trapped, and then in coming two days we'll see what are the biggest needs. Hong Kong's consumers will find out today how much they're likely to pay for electricity next year amid warnings of sharp increases in tariffs as global energy prices soar. Executives of CLP and Hong Kong Electric will make presentations at LEDCO's environment panel. Ahead of the meeting, CLP said it was handing out $200 million in subsidies to ease the burden on grassroots families. Its chief corporate development officer is Quince Chong. 
caring for the underprivileged and the community as well as the youngster have always been, you know, our core values. We come up with different programs at different times, uh, which we think is important to meet the evolving needs of the community. And we believe the fuel cost subsidy program will be able to offer a substantial sum of money to alleviate the financial burden of the underprivileged families. And we hope that we will be able to make the money in good use for the needy. Star Ferry has applied to the government to double its fares as it struggles to operate its loss-making cross-harbour services. It also wants to scupper free rides for the elderly, as Wendy Wong reports. The ferry operator has proposed to raise its adult fare to up to $6.40 for each weekday ride between Yuan Chai and Chimsa Choi, as well as its route between Central and Chimsa Choi. According to a document sent to Lechco, Star Ferry also wants to raise the cost of weekend and public holiday trips to $8.40. The ferry operator has additionally requested to scrap its free rides for the elderly and replace the plan with the government's $2 subsidised trips. Officials are seeking lawmakers' views on the application. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the outcome of the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Egypt, COP27. The summit wrapped up on Sunday and for the first time, world leaders have agreed to set up a loss and damage fund to help pay for the negative effects of climate change on poorer countries. But the world has failed to reach an agreement to phase out fossil fuels with the European Union's climate chief, Franz Timmermans, saying the EU was disappointed with the final outcome. After 9.15, we'll hear more about the new Chonquano, Lamtin Tunnel and Cross Bay Link, which is expected to start operating on December the 11th. And at 9.25, we'll be joined by RTHK sports reporter Atom Chung with the latest on the Soccer World Cup. Let us know what you think on any of these topics. You can leave a message on our Facebook page at Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Joining us now uh, on the line, we have uh, Jeremy Moss, who's a professor of political philosophy, uh, specialising in climate justice at the University of New South Wales, with a special interest, I should say, in climate justice. And also on the line is Lam Chu Ying, a former Hong Kong Observatory director. Um, good morning to you both. Um, Jeremy Moss, uh, can we come to you first? Good morning. Good morning. Great Thank to be with you. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, so, um, the uh, deal that was reached on uh, loss and damage, obviously it's uh, been very well received by certain countries, uh, such as Pakistan, which had those devastating floods uh, during the summer. The Pakistani climate minister said they've been waiting 30 years for something like this. So how significant is it? Well, I, I think that it's very significant, actually, that it's got on the COP agenda, and I think it's it's definitely a step forward. Although it is the case that the details of how much will be available, who puts into the fund, and how the fund will be triggered, remain to be worked out. So while we should celebrate the fact that it is on the agenda, 
I think it's too early to say whether it will, it will be a success. Previous funding commitments made by major countries uh, have failed to live up to expectations. So we re need to be really cautious, I think, about uh, clapping our hands too hard uh, about this particular development until we see the, the cash on the table or the cash in the bank and that cash flows through to the country that need it. Uh, uh, how is it going to be decided uh, who deserves what and uh, and how it's going to be paid? I mean, for instance, I mentioned the, the Pakistan floods. Uh, um, uh, clearly, scientists would say that this is a result of climate change and more examples of, or increasingly frequent examples of extreme weather. But then, I mean, uh, natural disasters uh, have always occurred, haven't they? So, so how is anybody going to decide what's actually, what incident is actually a result of climate change? Yeah, well, that, that can be a, a, a definite, uh, that can be a problem in that uh, we know, though, that climate change does exacerbate the intensity and the frequency of many natural disasters. And uh, that's something that, that I think can be quantified to some degree. But there's also many things that countries face, such as sea level rise, for instance, that we can clearly, I think, attribute to climate change. So there'll be all sorts of consequences that are already being felt of climate change that we can clearly attribute and uh, that money could quickly go towards. Uh, and, and I think in that sense, uh, there shouldn't be too much of a problem in deciding uh, which disasters need specific climate funding. I think a, a greater problem really will be who pays into the fund and how much they pay in. I think that will be crucial because um, the amount of climate disasters that we face are increasing and they're increasingly expensive and really for loss and damage to be effective, I think that fund needs to be very large and it needs to be very generous. And, and I haven't heard any particular country saying how much they'll contribute uh, at this stage. Uh, is it usual, Professor uh, Moss, uh, that um, the developed countries uh, will contribute more, like the US and EU? Uh, but uh, there has been discussion about the role of China. Um, you know, it's a, a very large emerging economy and still developing in UN terms, but um, it's, uh, it will be the second largest economy. So what, what's your thoughts on this? Well, I, I do think that uh, China should play a role in contributing somewhat. I think, though, that we can't just take emissions that are produced now or even in the last few years as our guide here, because countries like the United States and my own country, Australia, but also many European countries, have been emitting very large amounts of greenhouse gases for a very long time. And many of those countries' uh, emissions, uh, a, a large amount of them, have occurred since 1990, which was the date of the first Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, Synthesis Report. So I think when we take a historical view, we should, that should mean that uh, countries like the US and the UK and many European countries should be contributing, in my view, the lion's share, because that would be a fair thing to do, given the contribution those countries have made over a long period of time to the likelihood of climate change. Whether it actually works out that way uh, remains to be seen. But, but I think morally speaking, 
that, that's where the onus lies. It lies on the countries that have continuously uh, put a large amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and also who can afford to do it as well. We should add that to the mix when we're deciding who, who should pay what. OK, uh, we'll bring uh, Lam Chu-Ying into the uh, discussion in just a moment, but uh, but Professor Moss, I know you can only be with us till 8.45, so uh, we'll uh, just stick I, with I've you. I've got a bit longer, but thank you. So, oh, right, OK, OK. OK. Yes. Um, so, uh, by... By what you're saying then, essentially, it should be the uh, industrialised uh, European countries which were there at the start of the Industrial Revolution, which are, which are, are paying the most in, uh, uh, you know, uh, into the loss and damage fund, if you like. Hello? Professor Moss? Uh, oh, oh, yes. Sorry, yes, I thought yes. you were um, yeah. uh, going to the other person. Yes, I do think that's true, not just European countries, but um, uh, I think also, I mean... There are debates had, of course, about how far back into history you should go, but I actually don't think you need to go too far back because uh, quite explicit knowledge about climate change has been around for uh, more than 30 years in terms of uh, it being acknowledged by governments around the world. And it is just the case that uh, a large percentage of the world's emissions, even for industrialised countries, have come since... We were in full knowledge of the harms that those emissions were creating. So I, I do think that's why the onus ought to be on countries that have uh, been industrialised for, for quite some time. Uh, and it's also the case that many of those countries um, are not only emitting a great deal, but continue to supply the world with cheap, subsidised fossil fuels. So Australia is certainly in that position, as is Norway, as is Canada, and, and indeed the UK to some degree, and of course the USA. They are all big exporters and producers of fossil fuels. And while we, we measure a country's contribution uh, via the amount of emissions that are produced within its territorial boundaries, as we should, we should also take into account that a country contributes to climate change by contributing something at the start of the causal chain that leads to emissions. And that something is, as I say, cheap subsidised fossil fuels, which is, is what uh, many countries uh, like the USA, like Australia, uh, Norway and other countries are in fact contributing. And I actually think we ought to take that into account as well. Right. And finally, Professor Moss, the, um, uh, the COP27 also reaffirmed the goal of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial values. Now, um, uh, scientists have already said that this is um, not very meaningful because it might rise above 1.5 degrees Celsius. What, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, it's good that they reaffirmed that, but really, I think without, um, as you mentioned in your introduction, without uh, firm action to make sure that we're phasing out fossil fuels, uh, I, I'm not sure that that is enough. Well, I, I'm certain that, that that's not enough. So in 2022, emissions, the world's emissions decreased by about 1%. Now, 1% doesn't sound like very much, but emissions need to be decreasing and decreasing drastically. So we're going in the wrong direction. And indeed, uh, there was data released uh, in the first week of COP, I believe, by an organisation called Climate Trace, which is, uh, I think, uh, headed up by 
former US President Al Gore, showing that in many cases, the emissions, the volume of emissions that countries are reporting to the United Nations are, are below their actual emissions when measured by satellite data and other tools and so on. So it, it's quite likely that the problem is worse than we think. Uh, so simply reaffirming the goal of 1.5 degrees or keeping temperature rises under that is really not enough. It's inadequate. And, and I think on that score, um, COP has been a failure. This particular COP has been a failure because it's failed to agree to the phase down, or phase out rather, uh, of all fossil fuels, not, not just coal. OK, OK. Uh, OK, thanks very much. Uh, a message here on our Facebook from Richard says you can't just flip a switch and fix climate change. It takes many small steps, but nobody is willing to take the first one. Um, uh, Lam Chu Ying, good morning to you. Yes, good morning. Thanks very much for, for joining us. Uh, so uh, was this COP27 a failure in your view? Um, it's a serious failure, mm. and... Um, I think the COP27 has failed us in our effort to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I was following very closely how the conference evolved. And uh, um, actually, at the, in the penultimate edition of the uh, final document, there was uh, a very good reference to the urgency of the problem. Uh, it says that the greenhouse gas emissions should come down by 43 percent uh, by 2030. But uh, according to all that the countries have said about their um, reduction, the, um, the calculations say that um, it would only come down by 0.3 percent by 2030. So <laughs> practically nothing. So it's a great urgency in, 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 the, in the problem. But see, in the final version, this was deleted. There was totally no sense of urgency in the final uh, document. And actually, nothing on what actions should be taken to chase after the countries for their so-called nationally determined contribution to a greenhouse gas uh, reduction. So... Now the reduction of greenhouse gas emission is hanging in the air. Uh, there is no no one chasing after anyone uh, to, to, to fulfill their commitment or actually uh, uh, letting people know what their commitments are. So this is a great disappointment. No, no one is taking seriously uh, this, the subject of uh, emission reduction. Um, you mentioned that, um, you know, one of the drafts said emission must come down by 43%. I, I'm wondering, you know, what sort of drastic change to our daily life uh, would that mean? Well, uh, it's very simple. Uh, for, for the normal, I mean, the, the man in the street, what, what, what he could do would be to reduce the electricity consumption at home. Um, and, uh, and you can achieve this easily by not using air conditioning, uh, using less hot, for, uh, less hot water for taking a long shower, uh, and, and so on. Um, there's a there are a lot of things which you could do as, as a man in the street or just as a normal citizen. So uh, my, my guess, my, my own experience is that once I switched off the air conditioner, 
my electricity bill comes down by something like 70 to 80 percent. So, uh, so this is not as difficult as people might try to say, although it involves a change, a change in the habits. So that's the difficult part. How, how much of a difference would that make, that individual action, or if you like, collective individual action compared with uh, industry, uh, uh, industrial buildings and that sort of thing? Actually, we have a good experiment uh, done in Japan after the big earthquake. Uh, after the big earthquake, um, the government asked people to, to, to use as little electricity as possible because they switched off all the nuclear power plants. And this summer, by the individual efforts of the Japanese people, that the electricity, electricity consumption came down by 20%. So just an, just an announcement from the government and the cooperation of the population, you, you could achieve 20% reduction by individual actions. Practically... I, I, I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of people are willing to do that if the business sector can also do that, Mr. Lam. Right. No, uh, I mean, if we I go into a, a, a business, a commercial building, uh, the lobbies are already yeah. frightfully cold, yes. and the shopping malls and the restaurants, you know, that and you know how they really turn the aircon to like yeah. twenty degrees, yeah. so that you can well, eat more. Yeah, well, but this is not how we should behave ourselves. We should we should guide our action by by our own values and not by what other people do. Uh, so I I I I I have problem with this kind of arguments. And um, well, anyway, of course the government can can do much more in Hong Kong and elsewhere by by mandating how low or how high the temperature must be in in in, a, in any building uh, or uh, in in public places. For example, in Europe, uh, I know that uh, in Switzerland, this year they are asking people to uh, raise the, the raise the temperature inside the buildings in winter in order to save fuel. Um, so, government, of course, have has to do something on top of the people doing things. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, Professor Moss is still with us. Uh, Jeremy Moss. No, okay, okay, fine. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Lam Chi Ying, yeah, so, okay, how do you feel about the uh, Hong Kong's reduction targets then? I mean, we're supposed to well, be reducing by 50% carbon emissions by 2035. Is that is that looking realistic? Uh, I, I would say it's not impossible, but mm. all parties have to contribute. Mm. Uh, the people, the government, and as you have said, the commercial sector. Um, I, 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 I know... I know I have friends in the Business Environment Council, and it, which includes uh, quite a number of the big uh, corporations in Hong Kong. And I understand that they do have their determination to cut down their energy consumption, which actually is to their own benefit also. So um, I'm not worried about uh, all, all sectors working together in Hong Kong to achieve that. The only thing is that we, we, we must keep the courage and the determination. Um, well, 
this is not something which we should leave to the governments. I think that's not fair because ultimately it is people and the uh, commercial sector using the energy. Isn't there a problem here, sort of internationally thinking, that uh, uh, one country might say, well, uh, if there's no rules on what we're supposed to do, if we do this voluntarily, we're going to lose out economically and therefore we're not going to do it unless, uh, oh. unless everybody oh. agrees? This is a major misconception. Um, actually, it is now quite well established that if we manage the transition properly, justly, um, it is possible to evolve a new form of economy which we could call green economy. And uh, it has been established beyond doubt that uh, managing this properly, you can create many, many jobs for people who would be displaced by the uh, uh, sort of a retirement of old industries or old, old style of work. So uh, do not imagine that the standard of life has to retreat in order to achieve uh, zero uh, emission. Uh, it probably could lead to a better life because we would value what would be actually most important in life instead of valuing uh, expensive but useless consumer goods. So um, I I'm afraid uh, it is going to be a major transition which involves a change, a transformation of uh, uh, values. Uh, actually, in the final text uh, in COP27, it talks about major transformative transformative. A transition yeah, or yeah. a change. So um, uh, it is not easy. We have to all have to change our, our mindset, but it is something within reach, I think. Right. Um, uh, all over the world, climate action has been um, sort of led and um, echoed by a lot of young people. Yeah. Uh, for, yes. for this for this COP27, uh, we also have a few Hong Kong youth um, yeah. going to Egypt. But um, I think the numbers are still small. Um, so, Lam Chu Yang, are you optim optimistic about um, yes. Hong oh, Kong I, young people? Yeah. Well, actually, the young people have a, had a voice in Egypt uh, in the final session. I, I, I heard them, uh, I mean, collectively, of course, it's just like one person speaking. But collectively, um, they, they, they know what they want. And uh, they say that we are the present, we are the future. And I like uh, their final, final two sentences. They said, uh, we are not defeated, we will never be defeated. So um, I think the youth is the hope for our future and of course for their future. Um, I think the awareness about climate change and, the, and its impact is very high among our younger population. And so I, I really hope that uh, they would be more vocal, more visible, and uh, give more inspiration to this tired society. Mm. Yeah, in, in fact, um, after the news at nine o'clock, uh, uh, we hope to be uh, speaking to uh, one of those uh, young delegates uh, who, uh, who was at the COP27. Um, did you get a, a sense of... Uh, uh, if you like, um, well, I don't necessarily want to say optimism, but did you get a sense that um, the young people really believe that, you know, uh, a positive change uh, can be made and that uh, the situation is not hopeless? <laughs> well, I think uh, the characteristics of young people would be being hopeful mm -hmm. and have faith in what they do. And uh, 
you see, in, in, in the current political situation, it sometimes seems hopeless. But uh, in this, but I think uh, so long as we have faith, so long as we know what we have to do, and uh, with with faith, you never lose hope. Um, actually, I, I was I really was listening to the final session of the conference in Egypt, and uh, I heard the countries saying that they they were disappointed, but then I also heard the young people and other and other. Um, sectors um, of the society think that they, they they are not defeated. They will never be defeated. They will keep working mm. uh, on the subject. So I'm I'm eventually hopeful uh, towards the end of the conference. And and do you see young people from Asia, from let's say from yes. mainland China, from uh, Hong Kong? You know, we had a few. Uh, because, um, well, this, this century is really an Asian century mm-hmm. with a lot of Asian countries developing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it means a lot of emissions as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, at, at the final session, there was a small group gathered together behind the uh, single speaker. And of course, I, I saw at least one Asian face. Uh, we were represented. Um, and uh, of course, the major solution, the major source of solution of the climate change problem might eventually actually come from Asia or Eurasia. Okay. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. That was uh, Lam Chu Ying, uh, the former uh, Hong Kong Observatory uh, Director. And um, thanks very much also to uh, uh, Jeremy Moss, who you heard earlier, a professor of political philosophy with a a special interest in climate justice from the University of New South Wales uh, in Australia. Now, we're going to take a short break for the news. Uh, Let's have a quick look at the weather. It's going to be uh, cloudy with occasional showers, uh, thunderstorms later. Uh, Top temperature around uh, 24 degrees. Uh, uh, The outlook, uh, windier with showers becoming more frequent at times tomorrow. And on Thursday, it's currently 23 degrees, humidity 85%. Strong monsoon signal is in effect. And welcome back to Back Chat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And this morning we're talking about uh, the outcome of the COP27 uh, climate summit uh, in Egypt, uh, that which finished uh, on Sunday, with an, an agreement that uh, the richer nations would uh, pay for a loss and damage suffered by uh, poorer nations, but nothing really developing in terms of limiting emissions uh, any further. Um, which has been uh, described uh, by a number of attendees and delegates uh, as a disappointment. Um, we have with us uh, Venus Cheung on the line. Now, she, Venus is one of the youth delegates from uh, Carbon Care InnoLab who attended uh, COP27. Uh, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Morning. So what sort of experience did you have there? So COP27 has been a hustling week. On the first week, the negotiation was very slow for the national delegates. And it was um, a more delightful moment when the negotiation got extended and finally got a deal on loss and damage in the end. But um, as mentioned, that the loss and damage agreement hasn't got a concrete agreement on how the finance would be provided and where it was come from. So I think the civil society is 
still more skeptical on how the loss and damage would bring real impacts to those most impacted by the, the climate change. And uh, this is not your first uh, COP conference, right? You you were there also in Scotland. Um, not really. Like uh. Carbon Care InnoLab has sent youth delegates um, for some years now, but it's my first COP. Okay, so how, how many how many um, Hong Kong young people uh, went uh, to Egypt? So we total have eight delegates from Hong Kong this year, and half of us have attended the first week, and half of the team has stayed for two weeks. Mm. And what was the atmosphere like? So the atmosphere um, was very busy, mm. hustling, mm. and as youth delegates, we tried to make our modes. Um, to have high-level conversation with negotiators, including from um, international NGOs like World Bank and also from um, parties like China, um, U.S. And also we paid a lot of attention to build a network with the Global South countries and indigenous communities who need the most support from the more developed cities and countries. So was it useful from that point of view? I mean, were you able to, to build and strengthen and expand your networks? Yes, I think definitely. Um, I think um, uh, this year they put more attention on youth engagement and ways to engage them. For example, in the Blue Zone area, there is a youth and children pavilion, which is the first time to be appeared at COP. And in the pavilion, there are um, different panel discussions organized by youth, and it definitely provides a platform for youth to voice their topics. And also our Hong Kong delegates have um, organized a seminar on this, um, in this platform too. And this platform is also useful in a way that the world leaders when they pass by and go to the country pavilions, and they could also listen and have a more informal conversation with youth representatives. Right. Now, uh, Venus, uh, many years ago, I, I was at Copenhagen uh, COP, I, I think it was COP15, and I, I can see that there are many parallel events, there are arts and cultural events, uh, there are events organized by environmental activists, uh, and versus, you know, the very serious atmosphere inside a horse, which we are not allowed to enter, where there are delegates and, you know, from different countries and negotiators. So, um, and, and a lot of people say, okay, civil society can, can really be just, uh, and influencers and, and lobbyists. And probably, you know, there is more engagement this year. But how do you see, uh, the role of young people and, um, and also a civil society um, uh, in the future, playing a bigger role in, in COP and similar conferences? Yes, I, I definitely think young people is crucial to attend this conference, although there are rising voices to say what's a role in the formal negotiation when it seems like the high level is so hard to reach with. Um, and I think... As young people, the presence there is to unite um, youth voices from all over the world. And I'm particularly thankful that I have known some uh, youth leaders from Peru and also Africa this year, especially on the topic that I work on is about food systems. So knowing the firsthand story and their 
really telling the urgent um, urgency back home that has motivated me a lot more to continue the climate advocacy work that in Hong Kong to see what's the potential possibility on food system, on the decarbonization. And also, like, um, young people could mobilize movements inside COP, although it's a bit difficult in Egypt this year, but we do have protests um, or um, having climate clock to walk around um, the venue while the formal meetings are um, taking place to remind the leaders the urgency of the action right now. Mm. Right. And, and back in Hong Kong, Venus, uh, I... I know that um, you know you are extremely aware and conscious of um, climate justice and um, climate-related issues and policies, whereas I guess your peers uh, might not be the same as you. And when it comes to taking individual action to reduce carbon emission, you know, like what Mr. Lam Chu Ying said, just to turn off the aircon as as much as you can. You know, how, how do you think Hong Kong youth um, uh, could play a bigger role uh, in our city? Yes, I think Hong Kong youth could start by raising their own awareness. And by raising awareness, um, current care in the lab has um, been putting a lot of effort in climate education. And also the youth delegates ourselves, We after COP27, we want to roll out um, new climate education program, perhaps with the network we have established um, in COP27. And I think also finding allies is important when you want to grow your voices in the climate change movement, because sometimes you feel defeated by the eco-anxiety. And so and so I think um, the um, youth um, climate advocates program by Kevin Care in the lab is very, also very useful. And also, there's social media that could reach a lot of audience and grow your community right now. So if people want to start their own climate advocacy movement, they can start right now with um, less cost. And I think it's really just start, um, do not wait and grow the movement. Now, we had this uh, agreement on uh, loss and damage to help poorer countries, but th there was no real progress on phasing out fossil fuels. So uh, how do you and your, your friends and colleagues feel uh, after this uh, COP27? How do you feel about the future? Um, on the fossil fuel matter, we definitely have a strong disappointment on this because um, during COP, the strong voices, especially from the global south, is phase out fossil fuels but not phase down fossil fuels. Um, so... Um, also, in COP28, it will be holding it in UAE, which is a huge um, fossil fuel exporter country. So um, the negotiation on promising that space out fossil fuel is not promising right now. Okay, I, I still want to ask uh, more questions on, on what you can do back in Hong Kong. Um, you know, uh, you have just, um, you know, graduated from university, right, Venus? Yes, oh. I have graduated in 2019 and started a new master. Okay, so um, if you can think about your secondary school days, um, you know, all students are busy with the DSC. And then at university, there are all sorts of... Uh, different uh, courses to take and also university life is uh, can be very diverse uh, 
how how um, how important it is to to have um, to have a bigger alliance in Hong Kong uh, of like-minded youth. Is it difficult to do, or uh, or do you think you are just a small group in Hong Kong? Yes, I think sometimes it could feel challenging and difficult, but um, we are still trying to stay optimistic and do a lot of community outreach. Like in September, um, before we go to COP, we have an Alcoy conference, which is a local climate conference, um, to engage the youth to listen to what's the most, um, what's the climate matters that they have paid attention to. To the most, for example, during that time, it was Miu Miu um, factory that having um, a challenge that they may close down. So we bring up the discussion about circular economy and how um, the city can turn waste into something more useful. And I think there are youth that's um, gaining more um, attention to the climate change method. But when it comes to action, I, I think it really needs the climate education and perhaps also the storytelling to turn the um, attention, awareness into actual action. So, and when you mentioned there are um, maybe academic burdens and also other um, personal um, duties in life, I think it's really the priority of how you see climate change is impacting everyone now. So just remember that we cannot earn money without air. So. Um, the planet, um, the environment is really of the basic needs of whatever life that we want to build on. So I think transmitting this um, emergency um, in the storytelling is very essential when we want to mobilize the community to do more. Mm. Uh, and do you think you're getting the message across? Do you think, uh, do you think uh, more of the community and especially uh, uh, more, more young people are becoming more knowledgeable and aware about this issue and trying to do something about it? Yes, I feel there are more young people uh, getting the knowledge needed. Um, for example, there are three um, climate change platforms also online. For example, it's called Climate Science. They talk about the climate change impact in an accurate and scientific way so that young people can better understand what are the science-based solutions that we could develop on and how is the impact of climate change. And also, um, Kevin Care in the lab has organized community dialogue to empower not only young people, but a lot of different stakeholders in the society to see how we will adapt and try to mitigate the climate change. For example, the stakeholders engaged were um, cleaners, labor group, um, and also Red Cross and planners, and both in private and public sector. So I think the education is not only on youth and also empower um, vertically and laterally in our society. Okay, okay. All right, well, thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme. Uh, that was uh, Venus Jung, one of the youth delegates from Carbon Care InnoLab who attended the COP27 in Egypt. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Just a, a few listener emails now just before we go into our second topic, which is we're going to be talking about the new Cross Bay Link and Chen Kuang Lam... 
Lam Tin Tunnel in just a moment, but uh, uh, email here from Peter uh, on the climate issue writes, uh, uh, by demanding African states pay... 2.8 trillion US dollars to meet their nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement until 2030. COP27 provided the EU and US dominated WEF with a new opportunity to reinforce its neo colonialism and pillage African nations. Because most African countries cannot afford this amount, Western nations will most likely seek cheap access to natural resources so that the EU and US can finance and secure their own supply chains to accelerate their own transition to renewable energy. Uh, thank you. Uh, from uh, Peter, um, a message here from uh, David writes uh, on, on a topic we were discussing yesterday, which was a, uh, a survey on the best and the worst uh, public toilet facilities. Uh, David says, uh, um, after all these years, why can we still not have toilet floors that are designed not to get wet? And secondly, why can these toilets uh, uh, never be cleaned uh, with uh, hot steam uh, thoroughly? Thank you. David and uh, John Kowloon has actually written about the Star Ferry uh, proposing a doubling in its fares, which we were reporting in our news this morning. Uh, we won't get into that uh, this morning, John, because it's not one of our topics, although uh, I suspect that we may well be um, discussing that uh, tomorrow or later in the week, and we'll keep your email for that. Uh, but thanks very much. Um, now we're going to turn our attention uh, to Chen Kwano and on. On Sunday, uh, uh, a big event on Sunday, uh, lots of people, about 15,000 people uh, uh, crossing the new bridge, the new Cross Bay Link in Chonquano, uh, 1.8 kilometres long, uh, which links up with the new tunnel as part of a, uh, an improvement to the transport network uh, in the area. We're joined on the line by Christine Fong, Saikung District Councillor. Good morning to you. Good morning, James. Good morning. So uh, yeah. it's certainly from the pictures, it's, this looks like a, a, a spectacular addition uh, uh, to the area. Um, um, d d did you join the, uh, the, the crowds on Sunday? Yes, I did. Mm. And uh, it is uh, uh, really beautiful. In mm. fact, uh, uh, and I believe I, uh, I would describe uh, it will become, I mean, the Causeway Lane and the bridge and the Lambton Tunnel will become uh, a new landmark of Chang'an mm. So uh, I see many, many local residents or even some Hong Kong residents, they will go up to do exercise walking and enjoy the uh, beautiful scenery. Yeah, I, I understand that the bridge is not just for cars, but it is also for people to walk across and also for cyclists. I, yes, th I think yes, yes. I think that's the first. I really hope the Qingma Bridge one day would uh, have <laughs> cyclists too. So how, how are people in Changkwano taking that? Um, you know, what do they like about the bridge? Uh, Ada, thank you for the question. And in fact, uh, uh, people... Uh, Residents, local residents are highly expecting that it will, you know, uh, starting uh, this uh, uh, effective this uh, function. And I think both uh, this this uh, this uh, bridge is uh, both functional and recreational. In fact, functional in a way because they uh, it will um, improve uh, um, the uh, the worst relief the worsening traffic uh, all along the years over the years. Uh, because uh, our traffic are horrible in in Changwano. and uh, recently I I find out that 
the existing tunnel was uh, it was the most is the most traffic high traffic uh, second traffic uh, one in in Hong Kong, and daily was 107,000 vehicles per day, so which is much more than their design limit, uh, which is more than uh, the original design limit is 78,000. So almost 30,000 more vehicles per day are using the existing tunnel. So I think um, once uh, our Causeway Bridge and Changkwano Namjin Tunnel uh, start uh, commissioning, then then I I guess I expect there will have 30 percent traffic will be diverted to this new road. So uh, uh, the first of all is uh, uh, functional. I hope we hope uh, it can solve our traffic uh, jam problem. And uh, in case uh, there's any traffic uh, accident that's always happened and we cannot avoid, then then our local residents can have choice to choose whether we choose to uh, use the um, uh, Polam North Road or use the same uh, existing tunnel, tunnel to go back home or uh, you know in and out. That's that's uh, one in, one of the choices. Uh, and in fact, the new tunnel, in fact, is uh, really fast. If we um, if we walk up, uh, we only take uh, less than 30 minutes from um, the Changwano West, uh, south to Changwano West. So um, uh, it can be, you know, uh, we can walk and enjoy. And for uh, traveling, I mean, uh, if we're driving through, we we, are, we expect it will only take um, 15 to 20 minutes arrive arriving to uh, Kowloon East. Uh, even um, you know it is uh, directly tra- the traffic to you know it will solve the traffic in East Kowloon, uh, East Porto of uh, East Harvard, Eastern Harvard Crossing, and um, that, that will be more easier. So we we expect uh, and uh, today I I'm in Saigon uh, District Council and I also propose uh, the bus should have more um, route to uh, Hong Kong Island to uh, take advantage on the Eastern Harbour Tunnel. So uh, I hope uh, people will have more choices in coming days uh, by the time of uh, December 11th, once they start uh, uh, running. Yeah, yeah. So, so the new bridge and tunnel are expected. Uh, yeah, December the 11th. You you mentioned the date. So, um, it sounds from from what you're saying, it could have a, a, a very big effect on traffic movement in the whole area. I mean, not just Chengkwano, East Kowloon, the Eastern Harbour Crossing, and and uh, so uh, so this is going to make a big difference. Yeah, it is true. In fact, um, the, because the bridge and tunnel connected to um, between Chongkwano and uh, the whole Kowloon uh, is, but uh, um, still we need to, uh, you know, uh, uh, encourage. I mean, the, the department to speed up because the T two uh, main road hasn't been complete yet. So if we, uh, if once the the route uh, number six with T uh, two main main road uh, has been completed. Uh, Chokwano residents can um, arrive to Kowloon East, uh, Kowloon West. It takes only 17 minutes. So it, it really shortened their, their traveling time, much shorter than. Right. And in fact, it will also uh, uh, benefit to the cycle residents as well. 
Right, um, and Christine, uh, I think there might be a new bottleneck uh, after um, the uh, cars, the vehicles uh, from the two tunnels come out. They they will merge somewhere in Lamtin and uh, near the Eastern Harbour crossing, and um, you know that area is already quite congested. So with the new tunnel and with more vehicles, uh, I guess uh, you will be expecting a little bit of delay there, not uh, inside Chengkuanou, uh, definitely, but uh, in Eastern Kowloon. Yeah, Ada, you are right. In fact, um, even uh, we we are, we also expecting um, some traffic bottleneck will will happen in uh, before the Eastern Harbour Tunnel, and as well as some junction, for example, like um, Charcoal and Row, which they normally have many um, lorry and truck, but uh, the police force said uh, they will you know take action. So uh, people or driver, they should aware once they, you know, uh, they keep uh, control. Then that that's one thing. And other than um, Eastern Tunnel area or Yao Tong, uh, we will expect that uh, in the uh, roundabout of Hang Hao or even um, some some uh, some uh, area like uh, Po Yap Road before the P2 road next to the ocean shores uh, because um, they will con- uh, combine some some, uh, some drivers uh, driving down from the Saikong and Clearwater Bay may have some bottleneck as well. And as well as the um, Nohas Park, some main uh, main road uh, coming, turning to before the bridge uh, from Wampo Road where I'm from uh, Nohas Park. So those area may may have uh, some traffic bottleneck. So we we hope uh, the police force will will do some uh, patrolling and and do uh, some uh, improvement on the signal lights. Okay, okay. Let's, let's, kind of let's see. Let's see how it turns out. Okay, thanks for speaking to us uh, on the show this morning, uh, Christine Fong, there, a Saikong District Councillor. And now the World Cup, and we're joined by our sports reporter, Atom Chung, in the, in the studio. Uh, good morning to you, uh, Atom. So, uh, so well, big win for England last night. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, that's uh, good news if you're an England fan. And uh, what more can you ask for if you're Gareth Southgate, the England manager? I mean, your players gave you six goals. And uh, what I loved about that, too, was uh, the, the way the players all got involved. Uh, Bukayo Saka had two of those goals. Uh, I really like this player. He's been through a lot, uh, like Gareth Bale. I mean, Saka was the one who missed the penalty when uh, England made it to the Euro 2020 final. So it's good to see him do well. Uh, also, a youngster, 19-year-old Jude Billingham, open scoring for England. He played really well in the midfield, along with Declan Rice. So I like that setup. And, uh, you know, Sterling was involved. Grealish got a goal um, and we haven't even mentioned uh, Harry Kane you know a lot of people are talking hey are we going to be, be relying very heavily on Harry Kane well w- we'll see how he does the rest of the tournament but uh, it's definitely looked good for England so far yeah. he only played 70 minutes Harry Kane didn't he and then uh 
And then uh, Callum Wilson came on and made the goal for Grealish. Exactly. Yeah, I love that uh, Wilson passed it off to Grealish, a very unselfish move. I just wanted to give a shout out also to Harry Maguire, because, I mean, he was criticized so heavily in the build-up to the tournament, how he wasn't being played at Manchester United. Uh, I, I like that uh, Selke picked him, and he really delivered. He was the one, he, he hit the post early in the first half, almost got a goal. He also set up uh, Bukayo Saka's first goal, so a good game for Harry Maguire. And we also had Wales, USA and uh, Senegal, Netherlands last night. That's right, yeah. Uh, th- the best game so far has been that Wales-USA game. Uh, I-, I like the way Wales bounced back in the second half. Mm. Uh, yesterday, I said this would be the Gareth Bale game. I think it was. He was the one who delivered the penalty when, when they needed it most. So he finished one all between the two teams. I was really surprised about the Americans. I thought the U.S. came out really strong in the first half. They should have scored more and that they could have uh, won this game. But uh, the nice thing with uh, Wales winning is they get to play Iran next. And if they do well there, their final game against England could be quite meaningful. Could be, certainly, yeah. And, and coming up, so coming up today, we've got uh, Argentina are in action, aren't they, against Saudi Arabia. Argentina, one of the favourites, of course, as always. Of course, yeah, I have them winning the group. They are the favourites. Lionel Messi playing in his fifth World Cup. This guy has won seven Ballon d'Ors but has never won a World Cup. So all eyes will be on him. Interesting to know, uh, Argentina have been unbeaten in 35 games. They're too short of the, the record, uh, international record by Italy. So things are going well for them. Uh, they're also coming off a 2021 Copa America uh, victory. So they're trending well. Uh, Messi will need help. Uh, there's a mix of young guys and veteran guys on this Argentina team. I'm looking for some of the vets to, to show up, guys like Angel Di Maria and Pablo Dybala to uh, help out Messi. Mm-hmm. And we've also got, uh, uh, just quickly, we've got uh, Denmark, Tunisia. Um, uh, oh, oh the, the holders France are in action uh, overnight, aren't they, against Australia? That's right, yeah. Let's talk about France. I mean, the storyline leading up is how injured that team has been. They're without Paul Pogba, N'Golo yeah, Kante, right. and the Ballon d'Or winner, Karim Benzema. But hey, let's look who's there. Uh, Antoine Griezmann, their famous striker, along with Kylian Mbappe, always dangerous. Despite, you know, their injury problems, I still have France winning this group and I think they'll come through against Australia tonight. Okay, Atom, uh, thank you very much for that. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Look forward to it. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, and uh, let's have a quick look at the weather before we go to the news summary and, uh, uh, and a brunch with Noreen. Uh, by the way, thanks to our listeners and thanks very much to you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. Okay, so it's going to be cloudy today with occasional showers and isolated thunderstorms uh, later on. Uh, the outlook.